Welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science. Um, my name is uh, William A. Callahan. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department. I'd like to um, welcome you to the LSE Festival. It's going on all week. Lots of exciting things happening all through Saturday evening. So, you know, please come often. Uh, come back. Um, today we're, we have a panel of experts <clears throat> who are going to talk to us about propaganda and democratic resistance. And when I was thinking of this a year ago, it seemed very old-fashioned, very kind of sort of Cold War way of thinking about it. But the more I, you know, so I teach Chinese foreign policy, Chinese politics, and I found that now I have to kind of explain what propaganda means in China and how it's different in different countries. So that's actually one of the reasons why I organize this panel is to take advantage of people's knowledge and expertise and experience in different places with different concepts of propaganda and democratic resistance. <clears throat> so I'll introduce the panelists right now, uh, give you a little bit of their background, and then what will happen is they'll come up and speak for about eight, eight, nine minutes each. Uh, then we'll show a three-minute film made by some of our students who are over here in the front row, and then they will come up and we'll have a discussion. So the lights are going to go off in about 25, 28 minutes for three minutes, so I'll warn you again. Um, so the panelists, the first panelist is Peter Pomerantsev, who is a senior fellow in the Institute of Global Affairs here at the LSE. Uh, he's just published his fascinating book called uh, This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. It's a fascinating book. It's a, it's a, it's a good read. It's not just interesting. It's a very good read. As uh, <clears throat> my colleague Darren was saying, it's a cracking good yarn. Something. <laughs> Uh, anyway, and this is actually uh, available for purchase outside uh, after, the, after this event. Uh, the second person who's going to speak is <clears throat> Professor Shaku Banerjee, who's a professor of media and communications again here at the LSE. And she's just finished a report about uh, WhatsApp and misinformation and violence, mob violence in India. And she'll be talking to us about that research in particular. Uh, the last person presenting will be Darren Moon, who is at the LSE's Eden Center. At first I thought, wow, paradise, Eden Center. But Eden stands for Educational Enhancement, E-D-E-N. So, and he's going to talk about the experience that he's had and that I've had, because we teach a course, Visual International Politics, which involves students making films, creating things. And he's going to talk about that. And... Um, including for one of our courses, you know, we may, we inside the students to make a propaganda film. So rather than just criticizing propaganda, we think the best way to learn about propaganda is to just make it um, and then criticize it. Um, I hope. So uh, for Twitter users in the audience, uh, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag shape the world and hashtag uh, LSE Festival. Uh, please put your phones on silent so you don't disrupt our great show. Um, and with no further ado, uh, Peter Pomerantsev, uh, please. Thank you very much for, for plugging my book, and um, uh, I'm going to continue to do that. Um, so it is actually completely relevant to the title and the theme of today's Today's, uh, today's discussions. Um, 
the book actually starts with a, with a family story, um, and it's part memoir, uh, part family memoir, and, and it starts with the story of, of my father being arrested in 1976. As, as my surname might give you a clue, I have some sort of Eastern European roots, so my father was a Ukrainian uh, writer, uh, and in this case, reader in 1976, and he, he was arrested for um, the heinous crime of... Um, giving his friends copies of books by Vladimir Nabokov and uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which were censored in the Soviet Union. Uh, and I tell the story of his arrest. I tell the story about uh, you know, his struggle to kind of like the simple right to read uh, and to talk about what he wanted to, um, about how you know, in between interrogations he would uh, kind of like take a shortwave radio and try to sort of like use the Spadola dial to kind of find a way through the fog of Soviet jamming to listen to Western radio stations um, about the literature that he wrote at the time. He was both a reader and a writer, and, uh, uh, which is all about self-expression, you know, all about sort of expressing your, your own worldview in a totalitarian-ish system. You know, the reason my book starts with a, with a family story is not, is not self-indulgence. It's... it's it's there as a kind of a, a small example, a concentration of the formula, axioms, assumptions that we had about what was a democratic information space in the 20th century, what dissidents like my parents would have been at the avant-garde of striving for, but which was kind of assumed as the building blocks of a democratic idea of information. So obviously freedom of expression, you know, that's you know, what, what was the core of the struggle, freedom of expression against censorship. Um, a certain idea of the free self, you know, of a, of a free personality that could, you know, listen to jazz and rock and roll and uh, express themselves and their own inner feelings. Um, to both the rights and a certain idea of the personality. Uh, but also pluralism, you know, the idea that you know, the more media that we had, the better it would be for democracy, the better it would be for debate. And you think about my father trying to listen to a radio station jammed by the Soviet censors. And kind of underlying all this, um, an idea the powerful were, were afraid of truth. Yeah? That, that you could hold the powerful accountable with the truth. And why else were they doing all the censorship and trying to crush truth? I mean, the book that my father was arrested for was Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, which told the truth about the Soviet sort of penal colonies. And even you know, beyond these kind of principles, the sort of metaphors that we often used uh, that seem very potent, like the idea of a marketplace of ideas, that you know, the more information that we have, eventually the best information would rise to the top. And in the book, I, I contrast sort of my parents' struggles, and, and it's a cracking good yarn with, a, with sort of a happy ending, um, with what I see today and what we study at the little research initiative I co-direct at, at the Institute of Global Affairs called ARENA. Because the world that we look at, all those assumptions have been turned upside down, certainly questioned. So in a world where you can create so much disinformation at the click of a button. You know, we can create 
whole armies of cyber militias and online trolls with such ease, does the metaphor of a marketplace of ideas still hold? Are we quite sure that there's some sort of theory of rational information choice that will make the best information come to the top? And what happens when pluralism doesn't guarantee debate? When we see pluralism tip over into what some people call polarization or factionalism or partisanship, but so intense that democracies stop being able to have an evidence-based conversation. When people live in different reality bubbles, making any kind of genuine interaction very difficult. And even freedom of expression, which is, you know, the holy grail in uh, the International Declaration of Human Rights that dissidents like my parents would cling on to. In my new book, I, I go across the world. I go to South Asia and Latin America, um, to Ukraine and America. And what I find over and over and over is regimes not necessarily using the secret police to arrest people, not necessarily censoring people, but creating kind of online militias and, uh, and mobs to go after critical journalists and opposition, to kind of swamp them with a deluge of messages that say, you're fake news, you're a traitor. And when the critical journalists sort of say, hold on, this is actually weirdly a form of censorship through noise, the regime spokesman will go, no, this is freedom of expression. These are concerned citizens expressing their opinion about you. This is what you Democrats always fought for. And while the argument is clearly cynical, it's also in some sense correct. There's absolutely nothing in the International Declaration of Human Rights in Article 19, which is the article that dissidents like my parents sort of clung on to, that says anything about disinformation. It just talks about the right to receive and impart information. There's no category called disinformation. And of course we have a generation of leaders who don't seem to care about being caught out with the truth. You can screen the truth at them and they just shrug it off. If anything, they seem to revel in their lies, in the right to lie, in casting off the glum reality of facts. And we see that both in democracies and, and non-democracies. Now, you'll have to read the book about my investigation about why that's happened and what do we do about it. But let me put forward a couple of ideas to further the discussion. Literally, I ran down here finishing off a report that I've been working on with colleagues from both North America and Europe about how to regulate the internet. Now, do you think regulation has a part to play? But it's not the one that most governments are opting to take at the moment. Most of the push, a well-meaning push, in the face of these kind of avalanche of bots and trolls and disinformation is to start to try to control content, which is impossible online, essentially, because there's just so much of it. And um, probably illegal, it probably does go against human rights principles to start to censor what Sajid Javid called user-generated content when he was still Home Minister. I think we can have a different form of regulation. 
one that empowers people online to understand how the information environments around them is shaped. The problem isn't with one person saying you're fake news. The, point, the problem is with whole armies of inauthentic and coordinated accounts saying that you're fake news. I think this sort of mass deceptive activity could and should be made illegal. Not individual anonymity, that's fine, but mass coordinated behavior. Actually, some of the platforms already say they'll do that, but it's impossible to say whether they're doing that with any kind of rigor and consistency. So I think this has to be passed into a sort of regulatory hands. And I've only got 40 seconds left. I've got a stopwatch down here. <laughs> we've covered quite a lot of ground, though. We've gone to the Cold War and across the world. We've done regulation. And then, to make things much easier, I do think we probably have to start thinking about a new idea of public service media. Yeah? If the problem is this polarization, this partisanship, this fracturing of a common conversation, which was never very good in the first place, let's be honest, let's not romanticize the past, but which is, seems to be breaking down, I think we need a generation of media, of civil society actors, whose job it is to get up every morning and think, okay, how do we generate that common conversation? I'm going to stop there. We're thinking about methodologies to do that, but we haven't really found them, so I think I'll just stop with that thought. Um, and then I'll let my uh, colleagues take over. And next, Professor Banerjee. So let's see if I can... Good evening. Thank you for turning out in such numbers on such a rainy night um, and, and with coronavirus around. So, well, thank you. Um, I wish I could say that it was a pleasure to come here and talk about this subject. It isn't. Every single time I talk about it, I feel totally constricted. I sometimes lose my words. Um, it's something very close to my heart because India or the idea of India is something very close to my heart. And talking about it as it is being destroyed by people and by technology and by ideas is a very hard thing to do. So you'll bear with me if this is quite an emotional presentation since what I'm talking about when I started writing the report was merely isolated incidents of lynching uh, where mobs would gather basically through WhatsApp groups to commit murder. They would murder an individual. has now become a full-on, full-scale, ongoing pogrom in India's capital city, New Delhi. And it has been picked up recently by the mainstream media. It has been picked up particularly by the Euro European, US, and British media. And that's been a long time coming because people like me have been asking for them to pay attention to the subject long before the pogrom started for the last 12 to 14 years. So I think when we got a very, very small amount of funding to look into networks of hate um, and the kinds of people that passed on hateful misinformation on WhatsApp in an encrypted environment in India and how that linked to violence, we had no idea what we were going to find, but we knew we were out to question or to contextualize a particular version of the truth which was coming at us both through corporate media and corporate social media and through various members of governments and political parties. And this was the idea that disinformation and misinformation is passed on by ignorant, digitally illiterate publics who have too soon been given access to mobile phones and apps like WhatsApp 
and who have no idea how to read the political therein. And this is an idea that is very widespread, particularly amongst tech companies who would love to put the blame for the spread of misinformation and disinformation somewhere outside of their own technical field. So we had two aims, one to question the technologists and to see how far technology was actually capable of uh, hindering the spread of misinformation and disinformation. So you might say um, they are enablers of it at the moment. And the second one was to question the narrative coming from various governments, and in particular the Indian government, which is that they had absolutely no idea how this misinformation and disinformation was spreading. And in fact, in many cases, they don't count it as misinformation. They actually say, this is true information. These people who were lynched were lynched because they did something wrong. So you can see this was the context at the time at which we started. Currently, in the last five days, a much more violent episode has erupted across Delhi. And till five days ago, the newspapers were calling it clashes. And in a Facebook status recently, I wrote, well, that's a bit like the clash between the fascist jackboot and the human face. And I think I would like you to have that image in your head as I go through my talk. So here are some of the headlines of the British press recently and the, and the US press. And I think the articles behind these headlines are very good. And I say that as someone who has constantly criticized Western reporting on the Global South for years and years. And when I say they're very good, they're very good because they're historic, historically contextualized. And they're very good because they have the voices of the victims of the violence in those pieces. So well worth visiting and reading and looking over. But it isn't my brief today to talk about what's ongoing, horrendous as it is. It's my brief to tell you about our study. So our study wanted to contextualize technology within society and within a political ideological context. And to do that, we thought the best way to approach it would be through two angles. The first, textual, so we analyzed 1,000, 1,000 WhatsApp forwards, which were forwarded within Indian WhatsApp groups. We got round ethics by getting the forwards completely anonymized, so we weren't capturing anyone's name or address or telephone number, but simply what the forward was. And if you have a look at um, these two images, which are not from our report, but are more recent, they're the sorts of things that circulate um, about 10 million of these are released regularly every week. There'll be a new 10 million Islamophobic, anti-Muslim, anti-Dalit, anti-dissident um, WhatsApp forwards everywhere across the country. And they're usually embedded in a message which says, good morning, and thank God, and are you well? And then here you go. This is your fellow citizen, and this is what he's like. And this is coming in such volume that some of the people we spoke to in our many, many focus groups and our many interviews said they experience delete fatigue, where they're simply exhausted just deleting. Even if they agree with and believe the propaganda that's coming at them, they experience delete fatigue. So how disinformation and hateful narratives travel is via four different means. The first is transmediality. It's a complex concept. I won't go into the whole history of it. But in effect, it's where a single narrative, let us say the narrative of the Muslim terrorist or the woman who was asking for it, 
those narratives. That narrative travels across multiple different genres, fiction and non-fiction, and across multiple different media. Second, where mainstream media, which we are not yet holding to account as we should, in many big countries like India, Indonesia, and Brazil, participate in full in spreading misinformation and disinformation. So that, as a tandem, what happens is when a user, let's say a 22-year-old college student who really wants to know what is misinformation and what's truth, says, I've got this WhatsApp forward. Let me go and see what the mainstream media is saying to check it out, and let's see if that's, that's right. And so they do, and they get the same answer. Because the narrative is everywhere. The misinformation is almost monolithic. There is no space that you can go to to check it out. And finally, intertextuality, where different genres, such as the film or the music or the dance hall number, are transferred across into a news format and pushed out with misinformation content. So for instance, and this is pretty horrible, it is now being reported across multiple media, truthfully, that TikTok users are using images captured where they're actually beating Muslims to death with little songs on them, little patriotic songs, and Indian TikTok is absolutely flooded with that. And if you don't know what TikTok is, you really should catch up. <laughs> musically, for any parents in the audience, used to be musically. Targeted violence. So, let's move the argument forward a bit. There is a context to this. Users don't just wake up one morning and decide they are going to forward hateful context, content. They've been hearing it in their school textbooks, from their teachers, from their parents, from their religious leaders, from newspapers and television since they were five years old. They've been encouraged to not sit next to, not speak to, not trust, and not interact with Muslims and Dalits. They've been told repeatedly that their own communities are under threat, that Hindus will soon be a minority in the country, notwithstanding the fact that they are the majority. They don't want to live next to Muslim neighbors, so ghettos arise. People won't rent to Muslims. Those ghettos are then very easy to set on fire. Opinions critical of the government when they are expressed in online groups, in, on Facebook, on ShareChat, in WhatsApp groups are immediately pounced upon by about 200 of the sort of online troll army that um, Peter was talking about there. And those people are immediately made to feel that they are anti-national, they are traitors, and that they are vulnerable. Because two hours later there will be a knock on your door, a ring on your bell, someone will drag you outside and either you'll be beaten up or you'll be threatened with arrest. The police are entirely complicit in this. So in the ongoing anti-Muslim pogroms in Delhi, WhatsApp misinformation and disinformation is playing a key role in thoroughly frightening the Hindu majority population into thinking that all Muslims in Delhi want to purge them from the city, which is entirely false. And the truth, which is that Muslims are being purged, is entirely suppressed in those WhatsApp groups. So who's most likely to spread misinformation and disinformation? I'm winding up in two minutes. This is the nub of the report, and this is the thing that got me and my co-author obviously most trouble from the people that we were writing about. We found it is nothing to do with illiteracy, with digital illiteracy. In fact, the people in India who are the most responsible for making disinformation, spreading misinformation, spreading false news, and spreading hate speech are highly digitally literate. They are often highly college literate as well. 
and if I may say so, they are highly politically literate too. They know how fear and anger turns into violence. They come from a particular community, they tend to be upper caste, they tend to be male. They told us this themselves in the groups that we were interviewing, but they didn't call it misinformation, they called it fact. So digital literacy and critical literacy are two completely different things. Knowing how to make a propaganda video and put it online and do a podcast and a vodcast in which you say the Muslim invaders are coming is one thing. People know how to do that. Being critically literate and being able to understand when someone is putting that kind of thing online, what it means for the public sphere, what it's going to mean for citizens, and what it's going to mean for democracy is a completely separate thing. And the second type of education is just not being done anywhere. In fact, you could call it a miseducation, which is happening at the moment. And otherwise, we will never break this cycle of prejudice and violence. So let's think about solutions. If we want to ensure some kind of just peace beyond a technical fix, which is, fit, which is Facebook or WhatsApp saying to us, well, we will limit the number of forwards so you can't forward to more than 256 people at a time. Well, actually, sorry, mate, there's a little technology fix in India, which means that you can put plug a $1 piece of technology into your phone and then forward to 10,000 people. There are also old versions of WhatsApp around in India which don't have those limitations on them and people just load the old version rather than the new version. There are many ways that people can work around technological fixes. Democratic people know that the best because they started out doing that with VPNs and it's now the other side that uses that against us. So I think we need to have a concentrated, international, connected up effort to recognize Islamophobic content as a hate crime and to put these kinds of people in their place. And I am not someone who in any way supports the kinds of regimes that border India on any side. There are plenty of hate crimes against minorities going on there and there are also colleagues and scholars, friends of mine, working on exposing those. But I am talking about my beloved India, which is no longer a place where it is safe to be either Muslim or Dalit or a woman or a dissident. Are we hopeful? Not particularly. Thank you very much. Well, good evening. Um, as, um, as disheartening, perhaps, is... Uh, some of uh, Shaku's conclusions are, particularly about the types of people that are engaged in the kind of activity that's been described. It uh, segues very nicely into what I'm going to talk about for the next 10 minutes. And what I'm going to try and do for you is to provide some kind of framing before we invite three of our students from the IR318 course onto stage to um, screen for you one of their documentary films produced this year but also to address what the challenges are for education institutions and for us as educators. When we can see that these types of disinformation campaigns are uh, peopled by individuals with very high levels of edu educational attainment, with very high levels of digital, digital literacy, then quite obviously there is a clear challenge to the current provision for digital and critical literacies within education. <clears throat> before I go any further, I'll come back to this as I go on. Before I, come, before I go any further, I'd like to provide the framing for the IR318 course. Um, back in 2014, 
Um, the Eden Centre, such as it was then, um, initiated a series of projects uh, called Students as Producers at LSE. And this was um, responding to a growing literature around maker culture, social media in education, public science initiatives, and digital civics. And with a small investment, <clears throat> we pursued a range of exploratory pilots across uh, digital storytelling, uh, filmmaking, blogging, um, undergraduate uh, student journals, uh, and games-based learning. And the original conception for the IR318 project came out of that group of, group of projects here at the school, many of which I'm happy to say are very well embedded within departments and are continuing as established practice across the school. Um, this program was pursued for its pedagogic value, primarily, to explore the opportunities afforded by digital media and new technologies for educators in the classroom and to try and create enhancements and enrichments to student learning. But what's quite clear is that they serve a much greater purpose beyond that. I'd also like to just note that this is not to put digital media forms of assessment in opposition to traditional textual assessment. In actual fact, quite the opposite. Some of the most successful implementations of digital media for assessment have been in contexts where a multimodal approach has been adopted and where the integration of textual assessment and different types of media assessment have been really well integrated. And, uh, and I'll come back to that slightly uh, later on. So over our six years of teaching the course, it's notable that it's been against this backdrop of rising mistrust of traditional information sources, of the proliferation of propaganda and fake information, and, and it can be observed that the character of the student films have changed over the six years that Bill and I have co-taught the course. And it's quite encouraging to see our students not shying away from tackling very, very difficult subjects related to the topic of this evening's discussion. And we'll see some of that when we see the screening shortly. So the IR318 course is fairly unique. Um, it has conceptual, empirical, and practical objectives. So at a conceptual level, we provide students with theoretical frameworks for approaching visual media and visual artifacts and orientating themselves to the analysis of visual artifacts. At an empirical level, they get an opportunity to interrogate and apply those theoretical and critical frameworks to some concrete examples where visual artifacts have been significant in changing or influencing the direction of international political events. And then practically, we provide students with an opportunity to embody some of those practices and create for themselves a documentary film. So the course is really intensively taught. Um, the course leverages very, uh, very strongly uh, um, both uh, active learning and experiential learning approaches. Uh, so that's the process of learning by reflecting on what one has done. And we scaffold a series of formative assessment activities that feed forwards week by week and which generate the content with which students then critically evaluate in seminars. And the character of our seminars, and perhaps the students will speak to this a little later, 
It's maybe something more akin to a kind of maker workshop or a hackathon than a traditional academic seminar. So really engaging students as co-producers and co-creators of knowledge as they progress their way through the course. <clears throat> students are given a basic introduction to conventions of film grammar, to the technical information, the minimum technical information that they need in order to be able to approach a camera and to start using it to capture and record events around them. And then we get them started. Our students decide their own film subjects. They justify their choices and advocate to create filmmaking groups around them. And frequently what we see in the classroom is their ideas revised and reimagined as they go about the process of deciding on what will eventually constitute their final documentary subjects. The course makes a really good case for research-informed teaching and the value of research-informed teaching, with lectures directly informing Bill's most recent book, and with both lectures and the book evolving as we've taught the course in recent years. Bill's dedication of the book to the IR318 students stands as testament to the type of experience in the IR318 classroom. It really is vibrant, lively, and with a genuine sense of this being a shared intellectual enterprise between teachers and students. Also, it's a really great example, building on what Shaku said, of how complex and dynamic these digital and critical literacies can be successfully integrated into subject teaching within the domains. And this is really important. As historically, the question of literacies have often been exiled to the extracurricular hinterlands and rubber stamped as simply skills training. What Shaku has described to us demonstrates very well why that is how that is entirely insufficient if we wish to address these problems of the destabilisation of facts and truth in public discourse. The course makes a really good case for documentary as a valid pedagogical tool. Now, filmmaking as a research method still struggles to assert itself and the validity of itself as an approach within certain disciplines. Everything takes its time. But documentary is useful to educators precisely because it is so hard to pin down and precisely because of its inherent tensions and the unavoidable problematics around truth, fact and faithful representation. Oft-cited, but John Grierson's famous uh, line about documentary film as the creative treatment of actuality is exactly why it's appropriate as an educational tool for trying to teach students to have a more nuanced and critical understanding of digital and critical media literacies. In a way, it seems strange to be talking about students pursuing documentary filmmaking as a form of assessment. It seems strange to be having to justify the validity of digital media for assessment alongside traditional textual forms. It's 50 years since Paolo Freire's Pedagogy of the, the Oppressed introduced the idea of critical co-investigators in dialogue with the teacher. It's 30 years since Aronovitz and Giroux's postmodern education and the reclamation of mass media as a valid subject of inquiry. And it's nearly 20 years since Brian Goldfarb posited the idea of students as producers in his influential visual pedagogies text. 
However, post Kuhn, everything has its turn and everything takes its time to establish itself across the disciplines. But what's clear is against the current backdrop, there's a real imperative for addressing these questions of truth and fact in civil life. It's notable that when the Washington Post Trump tracker details more than 130 misrepresentations of fact or misleading claims in the first 35 days of the presidency, and accurate up to yesterday, some 16,000 false or misleading claims in the 1,095 days of the presidency thus far, debunking falsehoods might appear to be an enterprise akin to attempting to nail jelly to the wall, which is not to say that it should not be done. It's not to say that it doesn't have its place. But what we have to embrace is the messy complexity of knowledge making. And part of that is to increase the openness and transparency about our own practices. To perhaps take aim at re-establishing trust as well as re-establishing the utility of facts and guiding students in navigating notions of difficult truth. We might have to, for instance, be more proactive in justifying the construction of our own course reading lists, establishing a rhetoric of the reading list, if you'll forgive the pun. All our judgments, all our reasons for including and excluding the same way that a photographer or a filmmaker might have to decide where to place the four edges of the frame. What we're in the business of developing are critical, overlapping and a related network of critical faculties and so we should address it by evolving a really ambitious transdisciplinary approach and shift to a more collaborative and dialogic mode of dynamic literacies as outlined by Potter and McDougall. And we should stand this in contrast to the view of literacies as a static, narrow, autonomous set of codes and conventions, which is all too pervasive. And I will leave you now in the very capable hands of three of our IR318 students from this year. If you'd like to come to this stage. If we could uh, dim the lights, we'll watch this three-minute film. the world. That's the direction that we should be going as a movement. 
to get greater international solidarity and make sure our allies are not just far away and say, oh, I'm supporting next year, but they are a part of us. It's certainly normal for revolutions to spread. One thing I think you shouldn't forget is the counter-revolutionary version of that too. The international dimension of this is partly in support of the revolution, partly against it. The protesters who may have initially had a valid point uh, were misled by first a very small group of people who were extremely angry and over the current situation but took the wrong approach. I actually saw a video in Hong Kong and this protester brought out a grenade launcher and I was absolutely in shock. People were throwing petrol bombs and that is, that is terrorist equivalent attack. I know this is not about independence. People are not claiming they want independence, but in essence they do. Because if you look at their arguments, they're criticizing everything about the Chinese government, they'll bring foreign flags, foreign foreign leaders, and they were even chanting things. I think one of the songs is about Hong Kong independence. But now it's gone to a state where I think they're just being a bit greedy on some things, where they just want infinitely more things as an eventual independence. And that is an endless loop. What I feel about it is there's a lot of value in the movement and especially at LSA. Here we have the protection of the UK laws and legal system and also a buffer that is the international students that allows us to have a lot of mainland students and Hong Kong students in the same place. If we are able to do something here that gets through to the other side, just as I think the other side would gain benefit from getting through to us to understand what we're doing, there's a lot of conflict that could be mitigated. That's what we have to do with this campaign as well. Hey, uh, let's chat Baghdadi, uh, Olivia Lee, and Victoria Shum. Um, I'm going to start off the Q&A by taking the director's, the, the uh, chair's privilege and ask, uh, I think Jad's going to answer. Like, what's, did you, what did you learn from making this film? Okay, um, so we, uh, the Hong Kong protests started in June, and we decided to do the uh, film in October, so we all had our views, especially Olivia and Victoria. We had opinions, and they didn't really align very well, to say the least. Um, so that was a challenge at first, uh, to see which direction we want to go. But I think by, I think in many ways it served us well that we kind of balanced each other in that way, me being in the middle between them. And uh, it made sure that we didn't give one side more time over the other. And simply by, I mean, this was the three-minute version. We did a 10-minute version for the, for the course, and we interviewed a lot more people with, uh, with, for long periods of time. And simply by talking to them, I think it helped us challenge our views more and uh, think in different ways and more critical ways. Okay, thank you. Um, gosh, we don't have much time left, so we'll just open it up to Q&A. Uh, right down here. Can you wait for the, um, this door will bring a microphone. Hi, sir. Is that working? Yes. I'm Alex, I'm a former LSE student. Um, so, where you have a president who considers alternative truth uh, rather than fake news, um, 
how, how do you propose when you have kind of proposals for an institution to you know, verify what is true and what is not? How do you avoid that kind of being co-opted, um, as, as you mentioned, kind of regarding the police? How do you avoid that kind of co-optation in determining what is true? Uh, was that to me? I thought it was about India. Sorry. Is it to you? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so it's actually very dif difficult to do if people haven't taken on board for a long period of time how dangerous and how difficult the situation is. And my argument over the last 18 years has been that those people who are now in power actually were ahead of the game. They were starting schools. They were not working on technology. So 18, 20 years ago, they were starting little schools which were very discriminatory schools. And the textbooks in those schools were discriminatory and the things that were done there were and which children were allowed in and which were not. They were starting neighborhood clubs and civic organizations. And so it doesn't just happen that a president pops up who can talk or a prime minister pops up who can talk an alternative truth. That person comes from a context which has been built and that is a form of hegemonic action and so if you were to have someone coming up popping up and doing that in a country where that hadn't happened for 18 20 years prior to that there would be many many more critical voices and much less fear the second thing to say is that there obviously has to be some hope so one of the things that a lot of young people today are doing there in India is challenging their own families. They're challenging their parents. So the battle is not happening on social media and it's not just happening at the university gates or um, under the batons of the police. It's happening across the dinner table. It's happening at weddings and ceremonies. And a lot of these young people have for years um, just said, okay, we'll keep quiet because we love our mom and dad, and our mom and dad are so wonderful, they're paying for our education, so what if they hold these genocidal views? It doesn't really affect us. Absolutely. I've been interviewing them for 20 years. Accommodating your parents is a very big thing. Um, but, I, but, you know, this is the place, I think, at which you have to start saying that's where the challenge is happening, um, over, over the dinner table, at the university cafe, at the gates, at the workplace gates. But I wish I could tell you that it was the majority of people doing that. It really isn't. It's a small m minority. And the second thing to say is, at this point, I'm terrified. But you have to feel that terror and just keep speaking, whatever happens online, offline, to your president, to whoever. Somebody back there? Oh, yeah. uh, I've got a loud voice, that's fine. Uh, you hit on something that I wanted to ask about. How do I tell my mum? <laughs> well, I've had this argument with my mum all year. She just won't listen. She still should blow you forever. She's a teacher. She's literally a master. How do I get through so this is, this is something which um, is hitting us really hard. It's, it's hitting us in families. Um, I, I have, over the years, obviously been losing a lot of friends, but I also do have dear friends, and I go to bed at night thinking, my dear friend is a fascist. My dear friend actually thinks it's okay to split the belly of a Muslim woman open and rip a baby out because she sees that person as completely dehumanized. She sees that person as belonging to a community which is like another species. And so I think the only thing you can do with your mother is to stop doing everything else that she wants, to actually start saying no. 
no, I won't meet that girl, and no, I won't come to your function, and no, I'm not interested in listening to your backache problem because you are a fascist. I mean... Okay, we have time for maybe one more question. Uh, there are women. We haven't had any women asking questions. There's a woman in the middle here, right, right in front of you. Yeah, right there. Good. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. It's uh, very India-specific. Uh, in the recent Delhi election, we saw deep fake videos coming into picture, and that uh, misinformation has developed into that. So, is there any way in a developing country like India, where regulatory frameworks are not that strong, that we can control deep fake videos which are coming into picture? Um, so that's an excellent question. So you're asking about controlling deep fake videos. And I think that's not just the case asking about regulation in India. Can you control deep fakes in the US? Can you control deep fakes in the UK? Um, I heard and I've seen evidence that the Brexit referendum also rested on many bits of fake and false information which were embedded alongside truthful bits of information in such a way that people couldn't recognize them and they were spread far and wide on Facebook. So one of the things that we try to do with WhatsApp when we were talking to WhatsApp about what they could do is to argue that their regulatory mechanisms need to be much, much stronger and that they need to take down content. And they, of course, claimed privacy, anonymity, and encryption as a reason for not doing that. And we said, well, hang on, you're the same company as Facebook. And Facebook is taking down content which is critical of the Modi regime, is taking down content which is critical of Trump. It is not actually on the side of democracy. So I think there is loads we could do in every single country, even with very weak regulatory regimes, to put people pressure on big tech companies which depend for their profit on us using them. Um, saying that, I feel like a hypocrite. I'm on Facebook. I've gotten off WhatsApp. But it's a, it's a difficult balance, and I think we need to find a way of putting pressure on them to, so that they regulate much better. But equally, you have to challenge the fact that just like the mum out there and the other mothers who are fans, these tech companies are frequently fans of the dictatorships rather than of popular pressure and democratic movements. Um, Peter, do you have anything to say about this sort of thing, about how, what, what we should do? What, what I should tell my mother? Because you were talking about new methods and your, your new project of trying yeah. to, to not just kind of... Well, um, yeah. Look, look it depends. And I think it's important to take a step back, So I was doing a 10-minute presentation there. Um, so, and this question of polarization and bringing people together... We're interested in polarization as a strategy used by the powerful against the powerless. I don't think it's about five minutes to Hitler or five minutes to the Jews. I actually would push back against that philosophy quite hard. Um, so th we're looking at that. We're looking at a situation where the powerful probably can't have hegemonic control over the media space anymore, as they would love to. And so their strategy, whether it's in... Hungary, even in China and Russia, when you, look, when you dig deeper into it, is to create polarization around an idea of the people and the non-people. And it sets up an othering which later leads to violence and sets that in place. So we're not dealing with the sort of situation you're talking about where we are actually talking about hate speech in the illegal sense that leads to violence and where I think the company should be critically and criminally liable 
I do think our laws need to change to make them liable for content that leads directly to violence. But we're talking about quite a few steps before that, when we're just seeing this polarization strategy be created. And what do we do at that early point? That 20 years ago point, because yes. we are talking about something else, yes. which, is, which is really, really much, much more, needs much tougher measures. But where, where media can still intervene. Uh, and so we try to understand the mother. We've got now the mother thing. We try to understand the mother. We try to do focus groups with the mother. We try to understand what motivates the mother. And then we try to create content that engages them in a conversation. Um, usually, and again, I'm sort of using these massive generalizations, that kind of being able to take people and form their identities around polarization and usually around hate um, comes during quite historically and socially traumatic periods, when the old identities, the old norms have disappeared, when, um, for example, I look at Russia and Ukraine a lot in the 1990s when there was this huge amount of social churn, and we saw Putin you know, creating an idea of the Putin majority and everyone outside of it is the enemy. So you want to you get into those traumas quite early. But we're talking about subtle, clever, what is the BBC of the future stuff. You're talking about, you know, I think WhatsApp should be criminally liable if yeah. they do nothing about yeah. speech that leads directly to violence. Yeah. The question is, are they liable for every bit of content or, and here let us give Sajid Javid his due, um, I think the British approach actually about a duty of care is not a bad one. So they're not liable for every piece of content. But there is a regulation show, are they doing something about this? But that, we're talking about illegal content and illegal speech, which is quite a small category. Uh, most of the stuff that happens in the world is not that. And you need media responses to that. And e equally, Facebook have recently resisted calls to remove political advertising when it is deemed or demonstrably to be propagating falsehoods or mistruths. And so, so there, there is still that tension between publisher and platform, which remains unresolved. I, I, yeah, we don't have time to talk about this. That's so interesting, because yeah. that's where the debate is at the moment, and it's such an interesting one. Uh, well, actually, our time is up. This side will not be so. so I want to... Um, just want to thank all of our uh, presenters and our, our filmmakers and just uh, invite you to come to other festival activities. And lastly, copies of Peter's book and my book, Sensible Politics, are just outside turn right.